This is Yudah Kohan, Brit Hazon Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. With me in Yerushalayim is my good friend Yinon Don Kahati, a true Rodef Shalom, a true pursuer of peace. Yinon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Baruch Abba. Welcome. So, uh, Yinon, you and I are both involved in what's uh, often referred to as alternative peace. Yeah. And uh, you're somebody who listeners should really know. You have the opportunity to be a typical, generic Israeli peace activist, you know, with lots of popularity, lots of financial support from foreign governments to promote this two-state solution that everybody seems to want. But you specifically seek out truth. Like me, you're, you're looking to kind of unite Palestinians with the Jews in Judea. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I sign on everything that you say, and I must say that I learned a lot from you, and still do, and you are a true source of inspiration for me, I think for many other people. No, I appreciate that. But uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your work at the Home Movement? Um, before we're going to get to that, you spoke about a very important topic, which is, you know, to get resources from outside for something that should be done here. Mm-hmm. I think getting resources and especially to get uh, or to seek for support from foreign interest holders is basically what deprives the process of genuine peace from emerging from here. Right, too many foreign actors involved, too many chefs from, who don't really have a stake in what's going on on the ground. If, if the listeners could only see how much I nod in my head right now. We're talking about European governments. We're talking about... Americans, yeah. Arabs, doesn't matter. Right, but outsiders, non-Israelis, Outside non-Palestinians. Foreign interest holders, mm-hmm. that even if they have good intentions, they distort the natural and healthy dynamics that should emerge mm-hmm. from the process that should be done here. Right, so it's inorganic. I mean, look, something that might strengthen your point is the fact that a a good friend of mine and somebody you know, his wife, her job when they lived in Ramallah was to distribute money for the German government to NGOs here, to different organizations, primarily peace organizations, Israeli and Palestinian. And from what I understand, in order to receive German government funding, but not only German government funding, also any government really, including the United States, Norway, doesn't matter, they need to support a two-state solution. Even to the point that if an organization, whether Palestinian or Israeli, is caught having an employee who publicly opposes a two-state solution, the organization is at risk of losing their funding. Meaning that support for a two-state solution in which the whole world, including many Jews and Palestinians in the diaspora, are convinced is like the solution, is actually artificially manufactured by money from outside interests. And it's kind of like a religion. Mm -hmm. People view the two-state solution as kind of a religion and... It's a, it's a religion that has also industry around it and uh, so on and so forth. So, first of all, what about you? How did you come to do this work? How did you get involved in peace work? Well, basically, it was uh, just the time when I came back from the States. Mm-hmm. And it was just the time when it was uh, a lot of important events, very tragic. Uh, the murder and the kidnap of uh, Muhammad Abu Hader and the... Uh, three Jewish boys, the war in Gaza, 
you know, the alarms, the, the war that was felt all over Israel. And basically it led me to think about, you know, it started to penetrate into me. You know, I felt it. And even though I was researching the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for years, but as a standard from, from a side, from afar. As a bystander. As a bystander, but uh, researching and reading and listening to a lot of material re- related to this issue, whether about religion, whether about politics, whether about whatever. Anyway, just a week before I was supposed to move to Jerusalem and to start to be a tour guide, that was my original plan. It was the assassination attempt on Yehuda Glick and the Temple Mount thing. Uh-huh. And that led me to write a post that uh, said that we need to live here together in one state. I don't know exactly how, but I know that the event that's going to make this solution or whatever solution in the future... It should be in a stance on Temple Mount. That was my, what I had in my mind and still do to this day. And a Palestinian read that, and he contacted me on Facebook. It was my old partner. And the conversation that um, emerged from this five minutes of, hello, how you doing, went to five hours mm-hmm. of just brainstorm. And it was the first time from the personal contact and this is what I want to emphasize, the personal contact of really speaking with a Palestinian, not from a point of, you know, how miserable you are, how bad we are, how blah, 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 but from saying the truth to each other and basically digging and understanding what's the Palestinian, I don't know, narrative or what's the Palestinian's um, point of view is. That basically what led me to begin what I do, the human contact mm-hmm. with a Palestinian friend. Okay. The friendship. And you started the home movement. Yes. And uh, it started, and it wasn't intended to be a movement. It wasn't, it, it, there was no intention of, you know, things, things happen. You know, you go along the way, you do mistakes, you do, you have successes, you have failures and you learn all the time and still and still need to learn all the time from whatever move that you do Mm. and i'm happy to say that now we got into a point that we had in the last year participating almost 1000 people jews and palestinians jews and mostly palestinians Mm -hmm. and mostly jews from the communities in yudava shomon the west bank in the west bank judah and samaria with zero funds and that's really what uh, what I'm really th- grateful for. And I think that if we can do this thing and multiply it, who knows where we're going to get. It's not easy to build a movement. No. You know, especially when you're doing something that's so controversial, meaning you're trying to make peace between Palestinians and Jews without the agendas of outsiders. Not only that. I try to make Jews and Palestinians realize that it's not about Jews or Palestinians, it's about something bigger mm-hmm. than both of them. Like what? Hashem. It's all for Kiddush Hashem, in the end of the day. Even though I'm not religious, but the whole purpose of this thing is to really try and do something that will make Hashem smile or be proud of His sons and daughters that are here in this land. 
if I understand you correctly, or if I could translate that, you mean create something in this land that is a shining example to the rest of the world. Exactly. To make a unique example and building it not from scratch, because everything is already here. Mm-hmm. The, the conditions exist. The conditions exist. The material conditions exist. Mm-hmm. But we are lacking the spirit. Right. It's yeah. like we have the cup of coffee, but mm. we don't have the coffee itself inside. Right. The, cup, the coffee cup. Yes. The coffee. And this is what I, what I view as the state of Israel. This is the, the tool. This is the, the mm. cup of coffee. Okay. And it wasn't here 71 years ago, mm. and even a little bit more. But, you know, once we have this cup of coffee, and now we can advance. We have the cup. We, we have, have the, the cup. And we need to be very grateful for what we have. And especially as Jews, we need to be very, very, very grateful that we are living in the times that basically our ancestors just dreamed of. Yeah. You know, we say in Hebrew, you know what it you means? Live in a movie. You live in a movie. You're like hallucinating. Yeah. I think all Jews living in Israel, living in a movie. I think everyone lives in a movie. No, I think that we specifically live in the movie that our forefathers for 2,000 years, really, really, really visioned. Mm-hmm. I think we live that. What we were all yearning for collectively for 2,000 years, we are able to experience as our reality, and we take it for granted. And exactly. We take it for granted, and we're not appreciating it, but I think this is part of human nature, you know? Because, again, if I try to imagine what my great-grandfather in Yemen or in Poland were feeling or saying if I would go back from the future, you know, like with a DeLorean, and say that I live now in the state of Israel, and a lot of Jews live here, not all the Jews yet, they would probably say that uh, I live in a movie. Right. Exactly. Hallucinating. It's true. We are living in a generation where faith meets reality, where all the things our ancestors had to really struggle to believe could one day happen, is happening to the point that the average Jew living through it is taking it for granted and not even fully appreciating the magnitude of this historical period. And I think also as a Jew, you know, Yehudi comes from the root of to be, to be grateful, like it toda, kodaya. And we're not enough appreciative, we're not enough modim or understanding deeply this uh, really special privilege of living this movie of our great, great ancestors. So I think part of really appreciating the cup is understanding the necessity of filling it with coffee. Meaning, appreciating the vessel requires us to understand the necessity of filling it with content, of being able to move forward, of defining what actually... Hebrew civilization is supposed to look like in the 21st century, what that's supposed to look like for minority populations, what role will Palestinians play in that, what kind of economy will we have, what kind of healthcare system will we have, what kind of foreign relations will we have, you know, what kind of banking system will we have. All of these things need to really be discussed. And I think a lot of the work that you and I are both involved with, the uh, peace work specifically, is important because in my experience, I think a lot of Palestinian activists appreciate the fact that we're acknowledging there is a Jewish identity crisis that contributes to the conflict. And also a Jewish leadership crisis, if you ask me. That, that contributes to the conflict, yeah. that contributes to the situation. Yeah. And I think that's important also just asking ourselves sometimes what we contribute. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of Jews 
uh, especially in the pro-Israel community or Israelis, seem to be very defensive when it comes to criticisms of Israel. And, and I think that defensiveness, obviously it comes from a sense of vulnerability and it comes from a lot of our experiences and our traumatic history. But I think that defensiveness creates a barrier to us being able to properly engage the criticism. And also to clarify. Right, well, engagement leads to clarification. I think you have to see it. You have to be able to internalize it. You have to be able to say, wait a minute, the thing that they're saying about me, is it true? And if it's not true, why do they think it? I think introspection is really the healthy Jewish approach to criticism, both on a personal level and on a national level. Defensiveness is not. And I think that actually engaging a lot of the criticisms being lodged against the state of Israel today can actually help us you know, untangle our identity and move forward. Look, I think that we need to criticize ourselves, but not forget to criticize also other players here. Sure. And I think that many of the peace industry activists, they criticize only Israel, mm-hmm. not criticizing almost at all either the Palestinian Authority or even the Palestinian society. I think nobody is lacking from criticism. And it creates a situation that it creates a, a lot of antagonism towards everything relating with peacemaking. Right, when you say the peace industry, you basically mean the... I mean Shalom Akshav, Peace Now, I mean uh, most of those that are supported from the New Israel Fund. Or outside governments. Or outside governments, especially especially Peace Now. That's, for me, it's like really the the stamp of... They're they're the Coca-Cola of the peace industry. Exactly, they're they're the, like... Biggest name. The torch carriers of of the peace industry, in my opinion. And you know something weird... Also, you know, they speak about peace, but when you see their website, mm-hmm. they don't even have Arabic in their website. Is that so? Yeah. I'm not sure I've ever gone to their website. I did. I, I did. had uh, their app on my phone for a while because they had an app that kind of monitors the different Jewish communities in the West Bank. And uh, sometimes when somebody's looking for a good place to live, they would look at the Peace Now app, which tells you exactly what kind of community, what the culture is there, what yeah. the population is there. So it was very helpful, but it no longer, I, I don't think it like works with current phones. I think it was like yeah. a, an older app that's outdated. <laughs> Maybe they have a new one, I don't know. Yeah, you know, but it's so ridiculous. Also, the, the term Peace Now, mm-hmm. when you say the same term for 40 years, that's more than ridiculous but I think that uh, they also have a role I think they are very important to clarify what not to do how not to do and also what's not what is uh, the wrong direction right I think the and I think and I think in this thing regarding criticism it's really important you know to let them do whatever they do but to learn to do the opposite Mm -hmm. not to ban them or something like that Need to, they need to be opposed, they need to be criticized, whatever, whatever, but I disagree with people that say that uh, they need to be banned or something like that. Well, I don't know if anybody speaks about banning them, but I do know that there's definitely been legislation to force them to be upfront about their funding. I yeah. think that's important. I think that's good. That, that's actually, I, I can, I can uh, support that. Yeah. I can support that, and I can also support when... Uh, the government uh, bans uh, breaking the silence from going to schools. Mm-hmm. But, you know, breaking the silence can use whatever media tool that they have to spread their whatever agenda, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm really for for radical freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. 
almost like you can almost say everything. I mean, of course, not to incite to violence and stuff like that, but you can also, and you should say things that I disagree with, only if I can also reply you back. Right, but part of freedom of speech is people should know where the message is coming from, meaning people should be aware that if your organization is funded by the government of Norway, and right. Norway has a foreign policy agenda for the Middle East, then you might be a proxy for that agenda. Definitely. But now I want to speak a little bit about the home. The intention of the home is not to have any office, any salary, any definitely no, and I repeat, no money from any outside interest holder. And as far as I can tell, it's even much better to work without funds at all. Because when people volunteer and do stuff without expecting to get some kind of materialistic benefit, that makes the whole thing more real, more real and as in the aspect of really building human connections that are not based on interests or finances. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy to see a lot of friendships being created from the platform that I'm part of. I'm, I don't see myself as, a, you know, just a... The chairman, okay? I'm part of this. It's not only me. It's a lot, a lot of pieces in the puzzle that are in. And I'm very, again, grateful to be in that uh, in this position. Alhamdulillah. It's a great privilege to experience yourself participating in moving history forward. Participating in advancing Jewish liberation. And participating in solving a conflict that all these world governments... Can't seem to but you know, I always keep reminding myself that I'm just a small part in a story much bigger than me. And if anything will eventually happen, I don't know if in my lifetime, I don't know. It might happen tomorrow, it might happen in one year, it might happen in 10 years, it might happen in 100. But it's all the will of Hashem. That's eventually. And this is something that the notion that a lot of people need to really internalize and understand. He's flowing through us. Yeah. Like he, he works through us. We're, we want to be his tools. Exactly. We, we need to be his servants, each and every one in their, own, in their own part. And again, coming from, let's say, a non-religious point of view, even though I'm, I'm not an observant Jew, but I am, I'm a believer in Hashem. But for many people, believing in Hashem means different things. And I think that, you know, like we do the cleanups, for example. Cleaning the hate. Cleaning the hate. But we take Jews and Palestinians to clean trash together. Mm-hmm. We actually, I think, practice something that is really humble. You know, we pick up cigarette butts and trash and whatever. We give respect and dignity to this land. That basically from all over the world, this is the main mainland that is holy. And... Also, when people do it from a point of to take care of the environment or nature, that's also Hashem, the creation, His creation. Or to do it for the love of the homeland, or to do it for the holiness of Eretz Israel. It all connects. And by the way, also for the love of Palestine. When Palestinians do call this land Palestine in a different name, I can respect that. I don't you have problems. threatened by it. No, not at all. Yeah, I told you what I have a problem with. I don't mind the name Palestine only because I think of it as another synonym for my homeland. Meaning, you know, this country has had many names. Eretz Hakodesh, Tzion, 
Canaan, Canaan, Canaan yeah. You know, like Palestine is one of many names that applies to this country. And for thousands of years, people did call this Palestine. I have a problem when people refer to only the West Bank as Palestine. Mm. They say, like, Israel is in one place and Palestine is in another. I'm okay with it being a synonym. I'm yeah. not okay with it being a different location. That's like not Israel. You know, but also regarding when because, you mentioned... Judea and Samaria is also Israel. And right. therefore, you know, also Palestine. Gaza is also Israel. And also the east part of the Jordan should be also Israel. Mm-hmm. And just like we can say, Akko is as much Palestine as Hebron is Palestine. Right. Akko is as much Israel as Hebron is Israel. But also, thinking about the term the West Bank, mm-hmm. you know, now we can go to River Ayalon and we'll be in the West Bank of the River Ayalon or the River, I don't know, what other big rivers we have here? Kishon, the West Bank of the Kishon. You know, the, the West Bank, I think it's really a term that uh, should evolve back and I don't like to use it, but I'm okay with it, you know? In, in the meantime, look, I have no problem saying West Bank because it's the term that most of the world uses to really define the cradle of Hebrew civilization. Yeah. Right? That, like when people say the West Bank, they really mean real Israel, the central mountain region, right. Israel proper. The most important part of Judea. our culture. Right. So. By the way, regarding our culture, I think many Palestinians, even if they are Muslim or Christians, have also roots in Am Israel. I yeah. think I think this in no, a lot this of them are descendants of our ancestors. Yes, yes. Fact, and by the way, they also the the way that they live and they view their land and I totally respect that. You know, one thing that made me realize, you know, when I began my my work is that I saw that almost all Palestinians treat all of their land as Palestine. They don't say the West Bank is Palestine, the other is Israel. They say everything is Palestine. But a lot of Jews don't refer to all of this land as Israel or as their home. This is something that really, really... I, 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 well, those Jews have been educated not to. Yes, and I think... I think There's been a lot of work put into it. And I think also that a lot of Palestinians practically also behave like they are part of this land, like Bnei HaMakom. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, have, we have a lot to learn from them rooted. too. Rooted. Right. And we have also a lot to learn from them. So there are Jews who are behaving that way, specifically Jews in the West Bank. Not all of them, but there are Jews. It, it's ironic that it's the Jews who are considered the most radical and in some cases the most violent. We've had uh, representatives of the quote-unquote Hilltop Youth on the show before. Right. And these are the Jews, these are the Israelis who are behaving most as B'nai Makom. Exactly. Rooted. Exactly. Right. And this is why, and this is why, these Jews from Itzhar, from Bat'ain, from the problematic places, you know, like the real hardcore that are really you know, fighting over a deserted hill, they should be in the front line with Palestinians. And I, th- and I do it, actually. Right. They should be the peacemakers. When they in the same room with Palestinians, the whole atmosphere is totally different. And I saw a lot of meetings, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm articulating a lot of meetings between various identities in Islam, okay? But the most meaning ones, the most, the ones that had the most the deepest. Imp- deepest and most impact are with people like the leaders of, let's say, the radical settlers, the radical See, Judeans. That's a word I don't like. I don't like the word settler. I know you're gonna say that, <laughs> but mitnachalim, you know, in Hebrew is has a very, in my opinion, positive term. But 
But when the heads of the mityashvim, of the mitnachlim, sit with Palestinians, in these kind of meetings, the time passes, we begin the meeting like, I remember one case that we began at five, we finished at 10, and it was seeming like one hour just passed. Realness, realness is that time flies and you don't It's even, genuine. yeah. So this might be a good time for me to lay out where I think this is different. What you and I are doing is alternative, uh, or at least I'll speak for myself in terms of how I experience the peace work that I'm involved with. I think it's alternative for three reasons. Number one, as we've said, we circumvent the international community, we circumvent the peace industry, we reject a two-state solution. That already makes us alternative, that we're not part of the peace industry, not taking money from foreign governments, not taking money from any outside interests, or not Jewish or Palestinian. That's number one. Number two, that the peacemakers in our work shouldn't be the westernized diplomats from Tel Aviv and Ramallah to come sign an American piece of paper, but rather the quote-unquote extremists, the quote-unquote radicals, those who are fully living the aspirations of their people and are willing to fight, kill, and die for what they believe to be important to their story. hundred percent, hundred percent. Right, because the, these people are the ones who can actually come together and uh, make peace. And if they're not included in the process, we saw the Oslo process, the two-state process, And we still see today, right. you know, because these the same players that are sitting there with all the infrastructure that they have, mm -hmm. do we have peace now? Absolutely not. But exactly. certain people's economic interests were advanced. Yeah. That's true. And those who are really living their people's stories, those who are really connected to their identities and their homeland, were marginalized. And those marginalized, quote-unquote, extremists need to be the peacemakers. Exactly. And the third reason I think we're considered alternative, and again, I'm speaking for myself, and you know, feel free to uh, disagree or, or you know, present something different, but for me, peace can only be achieved not by forcing either side to compromise on anything that's fundamentally important to us, but only by creating a reality here that's experienced by both sides as victory in the subjective movies we're living in. And that means we have to understand, really unpack the grievances and aspirations of both sides. We have to understand the narratives of both sides. I think one of the real obstacles here is that we're afraid of each other's narratives. Jews and Palestinians are, for the most part, uh, afraid to engage the narrative of the other because we fear that if the other story is true, my story is less true. So we have to get over that fear. We have to stop... We have to stop denying the identity and denying the narrative of the other and actually try to create a bigger narrative that's inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival narratives. And therefore, the solution or the political outline should be bigger from Jews and from Palestinians and also from Israel. Mm -hmm. I think the only solution, in my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong because, you know, the future is only in the hands of Hashem, but... The guidelines are already written in the Torah. That's what I believe. And I think that once we will transform or translate these guidelines to practical political things that are also speaking the language of modern times, we will succeed. So let me ask you a question. In the course of your work, What have you experienced as the greatest obstacle to achieving peace or actually normalizing relations between peoples? 
First, you say a very important thing to normalize. To normalize relationship between Jews and Palestinians is probably the most fundamental thing, fundamental thing to do. And what I experience, especially the fear, the fear system of the Palestinian Authority or organizations like the BDS that basically threaten and impose tactics of fear over Palestinians that meet with the wrong kind of Jews, that's probably number one. Number two, I must say, is the fact that the Israeli civil administration doesn't allow enough freedom of movement to Palestinians to be part of this process, which means, you know, problems in the checkpoints, problems with, you know, Palestinians need to get entry permits to Israel if they want to, let's say, meet the Israelis in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. And instead of opening it up, more obstacles. And I think, you know, this most fundamental things that I'm talking about is freedom of movement and freedom of speech. And if we're going to solve some issues related to these two very, very simple things to understand, we might have much more chance to have more effect in this work. Because a lot of this work also happens under the table. Right. And this is a very, very big problem. Like you find that a lot also, of Palestinians but, but also, who are involved in this work are lot, afraid to do so publicly. A lot, a lot, but it also... This is the rule of the Middle East. In the Middle East, the truth is under the table. It's not above it because it's all about respect and dignity. And also what is considered to be unacceptable for the regime, if you step a little bit right or left from the regime's position, you might be in serious, serious problems. So let me ask you a question. If we're talking about a system that's in place right now, where the Israeli civil administration is deciding what Palestinians get or don't get permits or where they can go or what their freedom of movement is, why should Palestinians want to normalize that? Why should Palestinians want to participate in activities that normalize that situation and normalize those relationship dynamics? But I think that the ordinary Palestinians, and I'm doing this on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. I think that all Palestinians that aspire to live in peace, or genuine peace with us, and not being our enemies, should have freedom of movement anyway, because this is a Jewish value in a Jewish state, the way I understand Jewish state. And also in a Jewish state, there's the thing of Gertoshav, or the other, who is not Jewish. They should have the same human rights as Jews, basically. I think that most Palestinians are interested, not really in things that we think that they are interested they're interested in things that related to day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Go to a work without being hustled in the checkpoints for hours. Uh, go to the beach. Go to visit family. Something that uh, ordinary people do. And I think that uh, they deserve that, of course, if they're not uh, involved in any things that are against the Jewish people. Right. It's a long road. Yeah. There, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about. There's a yeah. lot to talk about, but I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing and I'm doing what I'm doing, and oftentimes our work overlaps. Next week, I think it's going to be uh, the night of Kaf Tevet, the 20th of Tevet, the 16th of January. We have a conference in Jerusalem mm-hmm. at Beit Uri Tzvi, yes. the Uri Tzvi Greenberg Museum. That's important because I think Uri Tzvi Greenberg, for people who don't know, is probably one of the best examples 
of prophecy returning in modern times. Anybody who hasn't been to the Uri Tzvi Greenberg Museum should go check it out. And also one of the founders of uh, Beit Uri Tzvi, Geula Cohen, she passed away a couple of uh, weeks ago, so rest, rest in right, peace. She was, Geula Cohen was a great fighter for Israel's freedom yeah. and the Lechi and the Lochanech Ruth Yisrael, who uh, was very inspired by the writings of Uri Tzvi Greenberg, who fought to free our land from the British Empire and, uh, like you said, passed away a couple of weeks ago. Left our world, but contributed much, mm-hmm. both as a freedom fighter and as a she member of Knesset. She was a woman, a fighter for Eretz Yisrael. And someone that really worked from ideology and values, and not from power or benefits. Something that we don't see nowadays much. All her life, her entire life, a fighter for Eretz Yisrael. Yeah. And, uh, and anyway, she ran the Uri Tzvi Greenberg Museum. Mm-hmm. And now we're having this conference at the Uri Tzvi Greenberg Museum. And I must, say, I must say, uh, very, very, uh, I'm very, very, very grateful for Beit Uri Tzvi for giving us their place, not for the first time, and almost for free. Mm-hmm. And to Beit Uri Tzvi. And a couple of things about the conference, if we have a little bit of time. This is the kind of discussion that makes clarification. We're going to have people from the extreme right and the extreme left, and we're going to have activists, Jewish and Palestinians. By the way, the Palestinian activists are not publicized. They're not there with their... On social media. We don't put their names yeah. and faces on social media. Again, because of the problem that we discussed before in Fact this up. podcast. Basically Fact because yeah. of the Palestinian Authority. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I, I, I get uh, some comments from uh, various people that say, oh, there's no Palestinians, oh, there's no women. I mean, if people would understand how difficult it is to articulate this kind of event and to appreciate a little bit, you know, the effort, because none of us get any payment for this, maybe they would not say what they say, but stupidity and um, this kind of things exist all the time. But it gives me kind of a fuel to, you know, I need to be pissed off a little bit to get me out of my... <laughs> right, to motivate you. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's like definitely. my mug. Uh, students on uh, a campus gave me a gift. It's like a coffee mug. And it has a map of Israel on it. But missing Gaza and with Judea and Samaria kind of cut out. Wow, with wow, 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 so wow. At first I was like not sure about this <laughs> mug. It happens to be a really nice mug just in terms of like size, shape, handle, whatever. Yeah. But uh, I find it inspirational now. Like every time I look at this mug, I'm motivated to work harder and to fight harder against the two-state solution. And even the idea that people have in their heads that there should be some kind of border in the middle of our country. Yeah. Look, you know, the thing about the dividing our country, you know, like the King Solomon trial, you know, I, th- I want people to understand that. If, you, if you're willing to divide it, it's you not would, yours. Exactly. Right. If you're exactly. willing to give it up, it's not yours. Legamre, totally. Right. And I think this metaphor really, really also implies who belongs, really, and who doesn't yet understand the role. Mm-hmm. And regarding this conference... Well, there's an English and a Hebrew panel. Yeah, English and Hebrew panel. And also I have the honor that Judah is going to be in the English panel. I'll be speaking in the English panel. And... And it's going to be with also great activists like Rudy Rachman. Mm-hmm. Great, 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 great activist. Right, he's been on the show before. Also, Ezri Tubi has been on the show before. Yeah, and Ezri is going to be there. Isha is going to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gershon Baskin, who is, you know, Less our great. opinions are... Look, our opinions might, might, might be different, very different, okay? 
I do know the quote-unquote... Uh, peace industry. Yeah, but I must respect him because, because some people from the peace industry refused mm-hmm. to be on that stage. Right. So, call a kavod. So, really call a kavod also to Gershon Baskin. And, and appearing alongside yeah. a bunch and it's of okay nationalist to disagree. Jews from It's okay to disagree. I mean, I think Gershon Baskin, yeah, is part of the family. He's not an enemy. Maybe he is wrong, maybe, and he is wrong, in my opinion, very wrong. But we shouldn't treat these kind of people as enemies, you know. We should treat them as rivals. That's fair. But in the end of the day, we also sit with people like them on the Shabbat uh, table. That's true. That's true. And also we're going to have Sarah Beck uh, from the Israeli media that's going to moderate. This is next Thursday. Yeah. 6 p.m.? Uh, 6 p.m. 6 p.m. at Beit Uritzvi in and, Jerusalem. And it's going to be also time to mingle and coffee. There's going to be a break. The people are going to, yeah. And maybe some, uh, some rogalachim and okay. burekasim. Wow, great. Okay. Yinon Kahati, why don't you tell listeners where they can check out the home movement online? Uh, they can uh, check us uh, in the website, which is uh, www.the-home.org or on Facebook. Our Facebook page, if you just click Step Into the Home in one word, you're going to find the home Facebook page. And I'm really, really grateful for you, Yuda. And may Hashem will bless you and strengthen you and your work and also your great family. Amen. Be'ezrat Hashem. Be'ezrat Hashem. Be'ezrat Hashem. Yinon Kahati, thank you so much for being on the show. Listeners can check out show notes at visionneck.org. Backslash the next stage.